I asked Ransom yesterday, buddy, what do you want me to preach on tomorrow? He looked at me and he said, zombies. <laughs> and so I said, dad, I said, buddy, I'll try to get that in there somewhere. So kids, if you're in here, if you have your clipboard, you have your little notes thing and you can take notes. And it's a good thing if you hear anything in the sermon that you want to remember, and I want you to be paying attention. I'm going to get the word zombies in there, okay? <laughs> Pay attention. But if there's anything in your notes that you want to talk to dad or mom about, if you want to think about, or that just like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know, write that down. If you can't write very well yet, talk to your dad or mom to get them to help you and say, hey, can you write that down? And, and maybe dad or mom, you can talk about th that with them later, later today or through the week. So the sermon title today is Jesus versus Make Believe Religion. Jesus verse make believe, make, make believe religion. Let's pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll get into John chapter 5, verse 30 to 47. Father, we need your help here today. We thank you that we can come to you as Father. Uh, we come as sinners and saints, sons and daughters, kings and queens, uh, loved, and yet, God, we, we just know we, we're not independent of you. We know we're very dependent. And so if we come here thinking that we are uh, independent, God, strip that from us and remind us of our dependence upon you here today. And uh, we just really need you, Holy Spirit, guide, guide us. Uh, God, uh, be with our people that are not here with us this morning and uh, help them where they are. And uh, bring repentance, grant uh, just help to those who need help, encouragement to those who need encouragement. Uh, be with the other churches, God, that are here meeting in this, in this community and the communities around us. And uh, we ask you to work powerfully there as well. We, tr we trust that you're going to help us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So from the Garden of Eden forward, so Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They distrust the goodness of God and believe that they, in fact, had a better plan for their life than God. And so they listen to the attack of the enemy, the lies of the enemy, who brought, uh, brought them to the point of questioning God's word and his goodness. They, they buy the lie and they sin. And then God comes into the garden and we see the beginning of man-made or human-made or make-believe religion that starts, it has its origins in the Garden of Eden. Because in that instance, Adam and Eve felt shame. They felt ashamed. If you felt shame before, that has been around a very long time since the beginning. In fact, in Genesis 3, and they felt exposed. So they recognized that they didn't have any clothes on. And to this day, if you don't have any clothes on, you know it. They knew it. They didn't have any clothes on. They felt shame and exposed as a result of their sin. And they immediately tried to fix it. They knew they were responsible for their sin. They knew it wasn't God's fault. They knew it was their own. And so they had this idea, we are going to cover our shame. We are going to take care of this. We are going to fix this. And so they tried to fix the problem on their own. They didn't come to God. They ran from God. They hid from God when God showed up. Global religion is a result then of the fall of humankind. It's I got this, I'll fix this, I'll take care of it, religion. It's not just in the Jewish culture that we see in the book of John, it's global. It's not just uh, Judaism, it is every religion across the board other than Christianity. It has the same foundation, I've got this. I don't need God to make me right with God. God can do some good things for me, but in the end, it's up to me. And that whole mentality is woven into what it means to be human. It's woven into our sinful nature. And Jesus, over and over again, in the Gospel of John, faces this 
mindset. And as he begins to engage with the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day, it can be representative not just of the people he's addressing, it's representative of the global mindset of all world religion. Anywhere you go, any nook and cranny in this world, apart from the message of Christ, is unified. I've got this. I'm going to work hard enough. I am going to, I am going to get this right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to ascend the hill of the Lord. I've got this. And so Jesus is going to speak to a certain and specific religion, but it is all-encompassing for all religions across the globe from Genesis 3 forward. So Jesus, he is going to tear down make-believe religion, and he's going to do an expose, and he's going to put it right in front of us. He's going to expose it for what it is. It is, in fact, a crock. It's not real. It's simply make-believe. People trying to fix themselves. Muddy people trying to get the mud off themselves without the living waters washing them clean. And so we're going to be in John 5, verse 30 to 47, and we're going to look at Jesus' verse, make-believe religion. Let me just read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll start with the first two verses, verse 30 and 31, after I read through it. Look with me. I came to do, I can't, excuse me, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a bright, burning, and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works that I am doing, bear witness about me that my Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has also bore witness about me, and his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. In fact, you search, I added in fact, sorry, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I did not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Verse 30 and 31, Jesus invites us to think. Jesus is the most logical human being who's ever walked on the face of the earth. In fact, the claims of Christ are not antithetical to logic. They are logic. And Jesus invites us to engage our mind. He does this through calling for people to consider the witnesses that are around him. He says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, 
My judgment is just because I seek not the will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not, is not true. Okay, if all Jesus has to back up his claims are his words, if he is the only witness to testify to his truth, Jesus is telling us, don't believe me. I think the principle is pretty universal. If there's somebody in your life who adamantly believes something but has nothing to back it up, don't believe them. If the person you're engaging in a conversation with, if their highest sense of authority is themselves, with no other appeal, with no other testimony to the truth of what they're claiming, don't believe them. Jesus is asking us to engage his teachings with logic. If all we have to base our belief in him is just his words. Jesus says, don't believe me just because I'm talking. But there are others who bear witness about him. And Jesus is calling us to look at the evidence, consider the facts, think about the things that he's doing. We've been doing this week in, week out. And the Jews would have been quite familiar with this because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, it calls for two or three witnesses to agree before any legal action can take place. And so J Jesus is engaging them with a, a familiar idea. If there's only one witness, we can't bear this to be true or not, true or false. There must be more than one witness here. And so Jesus is calling us to that. He's going to call our minds to consider other witnesses. We're going to see four witnesses in this passage today. At first, we're going to look at three, and then we're going to look at a fourth later on in verse 39. We're going to look at four witnesses in verse 32 through 37. So witness number one that Jesus calls us to is John the Baptist. So not only do we have Jesus' words, we also have this man called John. John the Baptist. Look in verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me. See that? Witness. So not just one witness, not just Jesus. Now we have another. Who is this another? And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John... And he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. He, speaking of John, was a bright, excuse me, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, it's fascinating because Jesus appeals to John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist, Jesus shows up. We've already seen this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, thanks Dan Malore, the sin of the world. He testifies to who Jesus is. Now the Jewish people, they held, held John with high regard. There were all types of people within Jerusalem going out to hear this man preaching and baptizing in the wilderness. And John the Baptist had this wonderfully inviting message. Repent for the kingdom of of God is at hand. He called people broods of vipers, like told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance as he to spoke to the religious leaders. But as he's out there preaching in the wilderness, it, it actually says that all of Jerusalem, now not every single person in Jerusalem, but all types of people from Jerusalem were going out to hear this man, John, and the people held John with high regard. And Jesus appeals to John the Baptist and his testimony about him. Hey, you're the ones who went and called on John the Baptist. He actually says this. You sent to John. And so Jesus is not, again, just saying, believe this because I'm telling you this. But he's saying, the man you respect, 
the man you went out to hear, the man who was baptizing people throughout all Jerusalem, he testifies as well that I am who I say I am. That I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am who I say I am. So number one, Jesus appeals to John the Baptist. Now it's interesting in verse 34 because he says these things. Look in verse 34, part B, after the comma. But I say these things so that you may be saved. Now I love this because we get to the heart of why Jesus says hard things to people. Um, Over and over again... In this letter, in this gospel, and in Jesus' other gospels, you hear Jesus engaging with a group of people who think they've got it going on in what seems to be a very harsh way. As he makes his claims, as he has discussions, he does things that at times make people run away angry to pick up stones to kill him. And it seems as if that Jesus is engaging in a way just to make people mad. It's odd. In John chapter 8, there's a group of people, we'll see this here in a couple weeks, there's a group of people who believed in him, turned to him, and Jesus began engaging the people who believed in him and spoke to them and called them children of the devil. And they picked up stones to kill him. Now, why would Jesus do that? Is it arbitrary? Is it, is it, some, is it accidental? Is Jesus wanting just to make people mad To run away from him. I don't think that's the case. Jesus' words here are quite insightful. Because he's saying, I'm telling you these things so that you would be saved. And there's an important side note here. For people to be saved, we have to open our mouths. Relational gospel sharing is impossible. Because to share the gospel, you have to tell what Jesus did. You can't live Jesus' life in the way that Jesus lived it. We are to live Christ-like. But nobody is in heaven because of you. Nobody is in heaven because of their observation of your life. People are in heaven because of Christ and Christ crucified alone. And so we open our mouths and we tell people the truth. The way Jesus opened his mouth and he told people the truth that they may be saved. And so the heart of Jesus speaking hard things to people. His heart behind it is that these people wouldn't just run away, that people in this group of hearing these hard things, that there would be people that would actually be saved. And so he loves people enough to offend them if it means saving them. And Jesus isn't afraid to offend people if it is for their ultimate good. He didn't water down the truth. So more people would tune their ears in? Actually, the exact opposite. He declared the truth so that more people, that people, his people specifically, would be saved. There is an idea today in our world that if we'll just water down truth a little bit, make it a little bit more palpable for more people, that more people will come and want to walk with Jesus. But here's the, I mean, the the statistics across the board are 100% in agreement Liberal churches who have abandoned the authority of the scriptures are declining in record numbers. I mean, by the tens, hundreds of thousands of people. And the only churches that are growing in this country, okay, I'm painting with broad strokes here, the churches that are growing are those who actually believe the Bible. Shocker. That believe 
that when God says something, it's good and it's true and it's right, and we are to bend our thinking and our feeling around what God says. That we're not to come to the Bible and say, Jesus, be a little bit nicer. Jesus didn't really say these things. He really is just inviting you to hold hands with him like this and skip down the road together. Uh uh uh. He's calling for you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So witness number one, John the Baptist, but that's not it. That's not all the witness that we hear. There's a second witness that Jesus appeals to, and it's his works. It's his works, the works that he's doing. Verse 20 or 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus' words, John the Baptist's testimony, and now we have the works of Jesus that are bearing truth, bearing witness to the truth of who he is. Jesus showed sovereignty over natural law. Natural law was subject to Jesus. Now, if you don't know what natural law is, that means that I drop this, what happens? Gravity, it brings the piece of paper to the ground. I was here and just kind of held this up and it just kind of pulled it up. We'd all be a little amazed by that, weirded out. Natural law is not subject to me. Okay? I'm subject to natural law. I can't bend natural law. But with Jesus, over and over again through these pages, we see that natural order, it's subject to Jesus. Jesus can speak to matter. He can speak to a cloud. He can speak to the ocean. He can speak to the lightning, the waves. And these inanimate objects obey. They grow ears and they listen to his voice. He turns water into wine. This is not a magic trick. This is Jesus declaring through these works that he alone can do this. Nobody else can do this. Jesus can... Heal a man who had, been, a, who had been, a, been lame for 38 years. He can do this. He can heal an official son who was at the point of death, who even died. Excuse me, no, he didn't die. He was at the point of death. Jesus can bend because he owns natural laws. He created them. You remember when, when everybody came up and the white witch in Chronicles of Narnia began to engage in conversation with Aslan? If you remember this scene, it's really, really good. And they're uh, kind of working out this deal to get, uh, is it the youngest son? Is it Ed, not Edmund, the youngest? Edmund. Edmund back and she appeals to the black magic or she appeals to the, the, the ancient, what is it? Deep the deep magic. And in this wonderful scene, they just got it so good. Aslan, he pipes up, don't tell me about the whatever. I was there when it was written. You know, in Liam Neeson's voice, you know. And we can all listen to Liam Neeson just talk all day long. Just this powerful moment, Jesus created these laws, and he's showing us through his, his actions, through his works, that he is not subject to them, they are subject to him. And he is the only one in which, by who he is, he, so, he shows sovereignty over natural laws. His works reveal the fact that he has supernatural power. He is not bound by natural order and law. So, Jesus' words, John the Baptist, the works that Jesus is doing, but that's not all. The very God of the universe bears witness to who Jesus is. Look with, the, look with me down again at the end of 
Um, actually in verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. Now already, the people in Jerusalem had wanted to stone Jesus because he, calling himself the Son of God, was making himself equal with God. And so when Jesus continues this dialogue and he's talking about his heavenly Father, they knew well who he's talking about. He's not talking about Joseph and Mary, like Joseph being his father. He's talking about the God of the universe being his father and saying that the God of the universe has borne witness that I am who I say I am. In Matthew, in fact, thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the baptism of Jesus that the, the people that he had been talking with would have been aware of, the baptism of Jesus, there was this thundering voice that comes down. And the God of the universe speaks in this way as the Spirit descends on him. He says... God says, the Father, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have not been left wordsless from the God of the universe. The God of the universe has testified as well. This Jesus is my Son. He is who He says He is. So Jesus, in in making these claims, again, is calling our minds to action, to think, to consider, to process Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then all that Jesus says and does is right. If he is who he says he is, the words that he's about to say to this group of people are right. They're not wrong. They're not unloving. They're not disregarding of their feelings. It's for the good of their soul. What Jesus does and says, everything he does, everything he says, it's right. We have all these witnesses with one voice declaring Jesus is the God. He is God in the flesh. He's not just human. He's not just flesh and bone. He is God. And if he's God, then we should listen to him. And we are not in the judgment seat putting him on the dock. Sorry, C.S. Lewis. And judging Jesus. Oh, no, no. Jesus is right. And we should change in light of what Jesus says. So those who disagree with Jesus, here's a big uh, big brain buster for you. If you disagree with Jesus, you're wrong. I mean, really. If his words and actions offend us, then we should ask ourselves why. Why do do the things that Jesus, why, why do they offend us? He's never wrong. People are People are. Is it a shocker to you that there are times in your life that you're wrong? Just ask your wife or your husband. You ever wrong? So Jesus is willing to rock the boat. He simply doesn't let everyone live happily ever after just to die and go to judgment unhappily ever after. And so he enters in, what we're going to see, he enters into the religious mess. And he begins to have conversation with him, and he's going to do an expose of these religious leaders. So Jesus turns, and now Jesus is going to go into loving attack mode against global religion, bottom-up religion. I can do this religion, and he is going to, if we hear him, destroy it. Verse 37b and 38. And the His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. 
and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus, in engaging these religious people, he turns to the Jews and he says, you don't know God's word and you have never heard from God. Never. You don't know God's word. They could have answered back. To us belongs the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To us belong the story of the judges and the kings and the testimony of redemption. To us belong the story of this people in Israel being redeemed out and then walking in the wilderness. To us belong the story of being brought into the promised land. To us belongs the story of being delivered out of Babylon and back into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls to former glory. To us belong Ezra discovering the scribe of the scroll and reading God's word. To us belong the covenants. To us belong these things. The prophets who, who declared, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus looks at them and says, you do not know God's word and you have never heard from him. What? They don't have God's word abiding in them? You do not have, verse 38, his word abiding in you. Friends, they had memorized the scriptures. Some of them certainly more than others, but the ones who were following Yahweh, the ones who grew up going to the temple, they grew up day in and day out diligent, hearing the scrolls read, getting their flashcards out, putting it on their mirror, putting it on their rearview mirror, unsafe, the dash of their car, putting it on audiobook, listening to it, memorizing it, and Jesus is saying, you've never heard it. Alarming. Alarming. But he tells them, you don't know God because you don't believe in me. Now, I want to make a differentiation here that's important. Because we're gonna, it's going to be easy to start talking about anybody who's legalistic and anybody who's religious as if they are all Pharisees. Like we have one bucket here. And anybody who's legalistic and anybody who is uh, struggling with what's, what Christian freedom even or liberties or anything like that, it's, it would be easy for us to call legalistic Christians Pharisees. And let me just tell you this. There's a big difference between legalistic Christians and Pharisees. Legalistic Christians believe in Jesus. And they're brothers and sisters that we need to be patient with and love, learn from, walk with. A Pharisee or these religious people here or religious people in general don't believe in Jesus and they are not our brothers and sisters. And a lot of damage has been done in my generation by me by calling legalistic brothers and sisters Pharisees. They are not Pharisees. Okay? That's an important side note. They're legalistic brothers and sisters who need to be, and by the way, I'm legalistic in ways that I don't know yet. And so we're in this together, trusting in Jesus imperfectly, trusting that Jesus saves us perfectly. But the people he's talking to aren't legalistic brothers and sisters. There are people who are outside of this thing altogether, who think they're in, who think they've got it going on. And Jesus engages with them. Jesus is going to do here some major deconstruction. He's going to tear this down and then reconstruct the reality of the gospel even through the Old Testament. And they've misunderstood. 
Because these people, although they have some verses memorized, they misuse the Bible like crazy. Look at verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's there they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This group of religious people, and again, not just this group of Jews, across the globe, people who engage the scriptures, people are seeing them wrongly. Did you know that you can read the Bible and memorize the Bible and do it all wrong? That's what Jesus is teaching. There's a wrong way to approach this thing. And you may be reading it, and you're just missing it all. And it's fascinating because it sounds like what the Pharisees are doing, it sounds like what they're doing is right. If we were just to read the verse in isolation, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find life, we kind of all take our glasses off, kind of rub our eyes a little bit, and just kind of wonder, well, yeah. What's wrong with that? The Bible, after all, is the road map to life. You've heard that before, right? Find principles to live. If you'll do what it says, things will go good. If I just do this correctly, I can be right with God. Of course it's the roadmap to life. But Jesus corrects that. It's actually not what the Bible's about at all. It's not about giving you principles to get in good with God. That's not what the scriptures are about. And many of us, not just in this room and not just in my lifetime, but from church to church, brothers and sisters, and across the globe, we adopt a pharisaical understanding of the scriptures. I, it's just, it's the roadmap to life. It tells me what to do and what not to do. And if I do what I'm supposed to do, things will go well. Apparently, Jesus has some things to say about that. Because, I mean, the typical Pharisee could have answered back, I know the Bible. I know what the Bible's about. I read and study it all the time. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Because the, Jesus, the Bible is a book about Jesus. He tells them, it's the, Bible, it's the scriptures that bear witness about me. This is the fourth witness. Excuse me, the fifth. Jesus' words, John the Baptist, the works, God the Father, the scriptures. Fascinating. The Bible bears witness about Jesus. It is a book about the God of the universe and the work that Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The Bible is where we discover the glory of Jesus and what he has done for us. The Bible is not a book about you. Really isn't. The Bible is not a book about you. It's a book about Christ. Yet millions kind of do biblical origami and turn it into a self-help manual as if the book is primarily about us. And I think Jesus is saying, get over yourself. There are better things in the world. I'm right in front of you, and I'm more glorious than you. And if you'll find yourself in me, if you'll look to me, I'm fascinating enough to build your purpose upon. The deconstruction continues. Jesus is going to give this religious group four offensive truths in verses 41 to 44. I do not receive glory from people. Verse 41. 
Verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Offensive truth number one in verse 41. Jesus' glory does not depend on people. Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. He is glorious as he is. He's not incomplete or more glorious because of you. He's independent. He is immutable. He is all the attributes of God. He's glorious whether we see it, see him as glorious or not. He is not less glorious because the majority of the world doesn't believe in him. He is just as glorious. And he is secure enough, Jesus is secure enough in who he is to be rejected by religious phonies or moral phonies alike. He's secure enough to let people walk away or to send people to pick up stones. He doesn't need us. Offensive truth number two that he says is that religious people don't love God. They love themselves. Verse 42. But, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He is reading their mail, reading their map, reading their souls. Jesus tells this group, you're doing a bunch of things for God, but you don't love them at all. In fact, if we kind of pair this with the rest of the Gospels, we see that religious people time and time again were standing on the street corner to get glory from other people, which is where he's going to bring us to. Religious people actually are in love with themselves. And they're trying to get affirmation from anywhere but from God. Just come, come on, recognize me, I'm good. Recognize me what I'm doing for God. Offensive truth number three is in verse 43. They receive people who come in their own name, but not Jesus. Now this is interesting. Religious people receive false teachers and false prophets, but they don't receive Jesus. It's a sad state when much of evangelical churches in this world, their spiritual, so-called spiritual gift of discernment starts going up when they hear the truth. It sounds like a lie. Because we're fed so much garbage that we believe the garbage to be true. And so when we actually hear the scriptures and what Jesus has to say, our discernment radars go up because it's like that doesn't sound right. And so they hear other people that come in their own name, and it sounds right. They're so entrenched with self-help, self-salvation religion, that the truth sounded like a lie. Fourth offensive thing in these verses that religious people are told. Religious people seek glory from people over God. They want the approval of everyone, as previously stated. They live for the praise of people. You want to live a sad life? Live, live for the praise of your peers. It will never be enough. Ever. There's always going to be a critic that crushes you. And these people were gathering people around them that thought they were something. Jesus said, that's the way to live. You live for the glory of people. 
You don't even care about the glory that comes from God. And friends, there's honor to be bestowed upon you because of the work of Christ. The God of the universe will honor us. Not because of us, in spite of us. And there are people who look at that and think, I don't care, I just want the honor of my peers, co-workers, whoever. That's what I want. Forget what God has for me. Religious people were using God to get glory from people. How twisted is that? They were actually doing what God says to win over the praise of people. They were working hard for God, not caring what God had to think about it, as long as they got people to notice them. So the expose continues. What's the problem? What's the real problem here? Verse 45 tells us the answer. Do, not think that I, do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. What's the real problem? Here's the real problem. The Pharisees were trusting in rat poison. Now, I don't want to equate God's law necessarily to rat poison. <laughs> but they were trusting in the very thing that exposed them as frauds. They were trusting in the very thing that was intended to show them how sinful they were. And they were banking their life with God on the fact that they could do it. They set their hope on obeying the law of Moses. They truly believed, I got this, I can be good enough, I can try hard enough, I can do it. And they completely missed the first, pur first purpose of Moses' law. And here's the truth, God commands us to do things we cannot do, even with the power of the Holy Spirit. He can do that and does it all throughout the Bible. God commands us to do things we cannot do for a purpose. It's as simple as this. The, look, for one, law exposes hu human sinfulness. It exposes that we can't do something. And they were trusting in the very thing that declared them to be sinners. So here's what's going on. A simple command from God, that we, from Jesus, that we think is so easy. And I'm going to steal from Michael Kelly. Jesus tells us, here, let me simplify what we think is simplify. Love God and love people. Love God and love others. And at first glance, we're kind of like, thank you, God, that's great. There's 600 plus laws. Now, Jesus, you've given us two. This really simplifies my day tomorrow. But there's a major problem. We don't love God like we should. Michael Kelly said it this way. Um, people are, are spiritually dead, okay? They're spiritually dead, okay? We're like walking zombies. <laughs> Kiddos, see that? Spiritually dead. And we don't like the things of God. We don't love God. We're bound to our sinful nature. God has to do something to us. We hear a command like love. Okay, these people could do hard work for God, but here's how Michael Kelly explained it. He said, used to, we, we would have these meals for our kids. And there was a night they had an asparagus night. You know, asparagus. Now, Tyler Ramsey can make some asparagus taste good. I tasted some good asparagus. My wife does a pretty good job making asparagus a little bit more than edible. And it, I tell you what, a kid who doesn't like a food, they may mechanically try to get it down, 
and you can command your kid to eat, eat the asparagus. And they can sit there for three hours, and they can do this. And as he said, you can chase it with Kool-Aid. You can get it down. But if we tell our kids to love asparagus, that's a command they cannot keep. They can't change what they love or don't love. This is what the law does. It exposes us. It's sinful. You mean I'm supposed to love a God who I'm naturally born in sin and I'm spiritually dead? How am I to love something I hate? I can maybe do some strong, good, valiant human effort for him. But to love him, that command is crushing. They missed the whole entire first purpose of the law, which was to drive us away from ourselves and to God. Away from ourselves and to God. Religious people think the law saves. Jesus revealed that the law accuses. Sinners cannot save themselves. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. Verse 46 and 47, we're about done. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's stunning. It's marvelous. It's beautiful. The scriptures really are about Jesus. And if you believe Moses, you would believe what Jesus has to say. And if you rightly understand what Moses wrote about, we would rightly understand what Jesus is up to. Moses wrote of Jesus. What did Moses write? Genesis. Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What do we find in those books? Well, we see creation. We see fall. We see the self-help project begin. We see God shedding the blood of an animal and covering the shame, doing for Adam and Eve what they tried to do. We see God shedding blood and wrapping them in the clothes of an animal, the first death of any animal on this earth, clothing their shame, doing for them what they tried to do for themselves. We see creation fall, then we see a redemption story over and over again. We see human sinfulness making valiant claims. We'll do all the law says, God. We'll do everything. And then failing and abandoning within one generation the God who they claimed that they would do everything for. We see judges raised up to save Israel. And then we see Israel falling right back into sin. Human sinfulness over and over and over again. We hear law. We hear sacrifices. We hear of feasts. And it all points to Jesus. And if they were aware, if they could see this, they would just see this is one unified message. We can't save ourselves, but God saves sinners. Praise God, the God of the universe does for me what I can't do for myself. And Spurgeon said this, The needle of the law precedes the thread of the gospel. So you have fabric, you have a piece of fabric, the needle goes and it hurts the law. Oh, it precedes the thread of the gospel who comes and sews us up and makes us well. And if you've never felt the sharp point of the needle, I would call your attention back to the law again. Have you ever felt your need? Have you ever seen how big your need was? If you've not felt the sharp edge of the law, the sweetness of the gospel, the mending, mendingness of the gospel will never feel as sweet. If you think you've sinned little, well then, the cross will never be that big of a deal. 
But if you feel that sting, then when you hear and feel the medicine wash over you again, Jesus, I've fallen short, but you have saved me. So let's recap. Oh my gosh, it's 11.20. I shouldn't have called your mind to that. Goodness gracious, recap. Guys, go ahead and come up. Go ahead and come up. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Recap. Okay, right, we can stay here a little late, but then it gets a little wild and crazy if we stay too late. Our kids start going nuts. Recap. Jesus' words to those who believe salvation is found in themselves. Jesus' words to the religious. You have never heard from God. You do not know the word. You do not love God. You listen to and receive false teachers. You live for the praise of people. You refuse to believe in me. And to this day, most people in the world prefer their own work, what we can do, their own work over the work of Jesus. Infatuated, putting selfies on about what we're doing for God, or our goodness, or our beauty, or making our lives look acceptable. And we have the opportunity this morning to do the exact opposite, to enjoy Jesus. If you're in here, if you don't know Jesus, and your life has been a treadmill of salvation, then you can repent of your sins by God's grace, God's grace, and trust in Jesus. Kids, if you've never felt that you've sinned against God and you want to trust in Jesus, talk to your mom and dad and they can pray for you and you can, by God's grace, be born again and repent of your sins. Say, God, I'm sorry for sinning against you and Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying for me. If you're a Christian, if you're walking with the Lord for a long time, go back, feel that needle and enjoy that thread. Let's worship. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us to sing.